I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Friday, September the 21st, 1973. Youth in court today. Woman dies after attack in cemetery. Less than 24 hours after, a youth appeared in court charged with attempted murder. The woman named in the charge died in Chesterfield Royal Hospital. She never regained consciousness after being found seriously injured in Bakewell Cemetery on Wednesday week. jury at Nottingham Crown Court took just one hour to convict Stephen Downing of the murder of Wendy Saul in the cemetery in Bakewell in Derbyshire. She had a, a, a lot of personality, very chatty, and she had friends and she was a nice, nice person. Wendy was severely beaten. I mean, she was... Uh, the way that she'd been molested for want of a better word she'd been um, she had been sexually assaulted you know the injuries to her head I mean she didn't die straight away she took uh, she, she didn't die she was taken straight to Sheffield where she died some days later Wendy was 32 years old Wendy Sewell was a local woman who'd been brutally attacked in, in Bakewell Cemetery it's a lunchtime on a sort of a you know bright sunny day I mean I remember in dark green velvet hips to bell bottoms, you know, like, you know, like the, they used to wear in the 60s, and she had long dark hair. She'd worked in town, she was well known, well liked, and Stephen had been arrested almost immediately and had con- confessed to the murder. He was just 17 then, really. Wendy's dad had died. They still hadn't put an inscription on um, her dad's gravestone. David Sewell believes that um, Wendy actually was coming up to the cemetery where we're sitting to look at, you know, examples of inscriptions. Although, that said, I think she liked to have a walk at midday and she just walked up from the town where she was working. So it it could just have been a lunchtime stroll. I'm going to show you where Wendy would walk up to the cemetery. Then you'll know where she went. Okay, It's not far. He'd worked in the cemetery... The claim was that he'd, he'd seen the woman uh, walking around the cemetery on her own and suddenly attacked her with a pickaxe handle. There must have been so many people just around, but, but you can easily just lose everyone and 
outside. Stephen Downing was convicted and, because he was under 18, he was detained at Her Majesty's Pleasure. Now, if you're not a student of the British legal system, Her Majesty's Pleasure is one of those peculiar terms which means that the prisoner is locked up for as long as the monarch wants. And in reality, that means as long as the government wants, and it could mean that they're in prison forever. If he hadn't made a confession on that day, it would have been a completely different story. The story they were telling Stephen is that, don't worry Stephen, you know, you know she's still alive. Uh, if you didn't do it, she'll come round and tell us who did it. Well, she's feeling better, she yeah. can say, oh no, that's not what happened. Yeah. But that's yeah. not what happened, because well, she, she never, died. Never really, you know, woke up as such, you know. Fast forward 20 years. It's now 1994. Don Hale, the editor of the local newspaper, The Matlock Mercury, hears about the case, and with the reporter's instinct for a story, he decides to look into it. For a nosy Parker-type journalist, it's ideal stuff, really, because, you know, you can really pick holes in a lot of stuff. I mean, Tony Blair, you know, called me uh, an expert at uh, exploiting loopholes, and I, I took that as a compliment, really. Don's investigation into an apparently simple tragic but resolved crime transformed many people's lives. It would have involved farmhands, prime ministers, shopkeepers, the Queen and even Nelson Mandela. It was like being part of a, a TV soap, that you were sort of writing the script as you're going along in a sense, where you hadn't realised that you were part of the story. This is Reporter, Murder in the Graveyard, and my name's Lucy Ditchmont. I'm the producer. The stories that emerge from the interviews I've conducted for this podcast are astonishing, like something out of a movie. At the centre is this brutal crime which shattered the peace of an idyllic rural English town. I've been told about sexual intrigue, police corruption, witnesses being threatened and intimidated to change or even withdraw their testimony. I've been told about car chases over the bleak Derbyshire moors, about vital evidence being lost, destroyed, and then suddenly reappearing in the most surprising of places. It's an incredible story. It was a young girl, a young woman, who had been brutally attacked in a graveyard in Bakewell, which is not the height of crime, in the 70s, you know, which was virtually unheard of. You know, this was a significant event, and I think for the people of Bakewell, it was a significant event. Mm. You know, and, and, and that's why it kind of became imprinted on their memories. I was interested in this story because I grew up in Derbyshire, in the Peak District area where this crime happened. So the place has a real resonance for me. But I hadn't heard of the murder of Wendy Saul or about Stephen Downing before I started working on the series. My childhood memories of Bakewell are all to do with being bored mindless and being dragged around antique shops by my parents and being forced to eat the town's one and only contribution to British culinary culture, the Bakewell pudding. And before we get any angry emails, as my parents drummed into me, pudding not tart, pudding not tart. And I hate almonds. So hearing about this horrific murder was quite a shock. It's hard to reconcile with the chocolate box image I've carried around since I was a kid. It also surprised me the mark that the crime and Don Hale's investigation has left on the town and on the people in it. All these years later, it still means something and it's still raw to many people. Although the murder happened over 40 years ago, the story's still relevant today. 
I returned to Bakewell to record interviews for the series. Researcher Pippa Godfrey came with me. I thought the people that we met were chatty, but some of them were concerned about talking about the murder. Do people still remember it? They all seem to remember it, most of them, certainly over a certain age, um, but were often reluctant to talk about it, as if it was some kind of personal shame. Perhaps they thought that it, it wouldn't be good for tourism uh, if people still talked about it. Perhaps it had had some effect, because it's been a tourist place for a long time, hasn't it? This is a story of a brutal murder, a landmark fight for justice, and a crime which remains unsolved. But for me, it's also a story about a woman. It's a story about Wendy Saul. And what strikes me is that in many accounts of this case, Wendy's become almost invisible. Her name has disappeared, or in some cases, been grossly slandered. Personally, I'm not sure what's worse. I was quite shocked at the way Wendy Sewell was portrayed. I think there was a lot of sort of assumptions about her. I think um, I remember reading things that had been saying she was a bit of a slut and she was promiscuous. I love crime stories, but it bothers me that so many seem fixated on women as victims, as attractive corpses, and I don't want to do that. One of the things I want to do in this series is to put Wendy back into the story. I want her to be the centre of this as a person, not just as a chalk line on a pavement or as a pretty body. I think sometimes people had lost sight of the fact that she was a victim and she was somebody who died. In a way, she was sort of, that was the event rather than thinking of her as a human being. Being murdered ended Wendy's life. It didn't define it. The local newspaper for Bakewell and the surrounding area of Derbyshire is the Matlock Mercury, based in a town eight miles away. My name's uh, Donald Hale, uh, known as Don in the trade. Um, Semi-retired, but seemed to be busier than ever. In 1994, Don was the editor. And it was into Don's office that Stephen Downing's parents, Ray and Nita, walked to see if the newspaper could do anything to help get their son out of prison. He turned up with his with his wife uh, Nita, and uh, you know started going ten to the dozen about this about his son's um, con- murder conviction, which I knew absolutely nothing about. Uh, you know, and, and it's sort of it's quite quite fascinating what he was sort of telling me. It, everything seemed so obvious that he 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 hadn't done it, and that somebody else was responsible. And I was thinking, well, if it's so obvious, why is he still in jail then? You know, if he's been in been in jail then twenty years, uh, uh, just over twenty years, I think it was then. I thought this this can't be right. You know, he, he's making it up, or he's you know he's, he's a chancer or whatever it was really. And so anyway, he turned up and he had a whole pile of stuff with him, almost buried me. You know, when when he piled this on on the, my table, I could hardly see him. I had to move things so I could look across the the pile at, at him. I said, okay, well, <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> just, just... I mean the witness statements. There was copies of the photographs. There's all sorts of things that came into me. And he was talking, I say, ten to the dozen all the time about mentioning names of this, that, and the other, and you know uh, what had happened and what should happen and what have you. And of course, I was not knowledgeable about the justice system at that time anyway. I didn't know where it could go from there. Why come to me in the first? But what can I do? I'm running a local newspaper. I'm not a policeman, you know. And 
I didn't necessarily know about investigative journalism at that time. You know, I'd, I'd done features with people, I'd asked questions, but, uh, I, you know, it's a one-off. You go and interview somebody or you you turn up at court, I cover court stories and that was it. But what could I do for him? I don't know. So, you know, I listened patiently. He was there for probably a good hour or more, an hour and a half. Did you know about the murder case? No. What, I, mean... I only picked it up first hand then from Ray, who was saying that uh, Wendy Sewell was a very attractive local woman who'd been brutally attacked and uh, eventually died uh, from her injuries in, in Bakewell Cemetery in the middle of the day. She'd worked in town, she was well-known, well-liked, um, and Stephen had been arrested almost immediately and had con confessed to the murder. Uh, he'd worked in the cemetery... The claim was that he'd, he'd seen the woman uh, walking around the cemetery on her own and suddenly attacked her with a pickaxe handle. And, you know, the police had taken him in for questioning, um, you know, and there's a bit of a scramble around as to, to what was what it was all about. Uh, and, you know, after a period of time, he, he'd confessed. And it was it was done and dusted. That was it. And that a lot of people seem to accept that, you see. And from what Ray was saying to me, there's another story here. You know, you've not, you've only heard part of the story here. Well, I haven't heard any of it. <laughs> Ray Downing told Don the family's version of events about failings in the defence case, about Stephen's alibi, and about vital witnesses that the police hadn't talked to. Obviously, from a journalist's point of view, it all sounds quite interesting and puzzling, as it were. Well, how come it's gone twenty years when nothing's happened? If it's so obvious, you know. Um, is it worth me getting involved with it? Um, I wasn't on a glory hunt or anything like that. It was it was just a question, well, I need to look at this, really, to see, you know, is he telling porkies here, you know? So I didn't look at all the papers he brought me. I mean, there's obviously a ton of stuff, but all sorts of things, really. So, And I said, well, look, you know, whoa, hang on a minute. You know, I'm, I'm not a private investigator or whatever. Um, I need time to think about this, really, Ray. You know, let's... You've told me what's what. Um, maybe I can come and see you in a, in a few days' time, that sort of thing, really. So I sort of fobbed him off in a way, and I think he thought, oh, that's yeah, waste of time, really. Did a bit of you go, this man has clearly got a kind of conspiracy theory or, a, or he's yeah. a desperate parent? Well, I mean, what, what he was saying to me was that he'd been told, he'd had a phone call to say that some new evidence had come to light um, that, it, that it had been given to, uh, sent to me and to the star, so I went to ask the others. I needed a breather from it, really, because it's all you know a bit heavy duty to me, really. I said, "Look, is you know anything come in from uh, anything to do with Ray Down and Stephen Down and his son about murder and all this?" And most of them were fairly young people, really. Is there. this people in the office? In the office, the, the journalists and that. But there was only Sam there, who was uh, who was uh, basically retired. He was in his sixties then, uh, well, in his sixties anyway. And he chipped in, said, yeah, "Yeah, he knew about this case, and he actually covered the case." when it was first on, you know, years ago. 20 years beforehand? Yeah, uh, and thought there was a bit of a doubt about it, but because he confessed and it seemed to be clear-cut, you know, and said that this guy, Ray, the father, had been on this hobby horse for, for years for, you know, anybody that would care to listen. His son was innocent and, you know, basically don't get sucked into be be careful. As Don says, the team at the Matlock Mercury were a mixture of old hacks, like Sam Fay, and new reporters fresh out of college. What they lacked in experience, they made up for an ambition, and they always had their eye out for a story. We weren't quite on chalk and slate. We, d we did have, you know, uh, early computers, but uh, it, was, it was fairly, fairly basic stuff. Phil Brownlee was somewhat sceptical of pursuing Ray Downing's claims. Was there something in it? Or would it be a whole load of work for nothing? I was never quite sure 
whether anything much would come of it or whether it was just the natural reaction of the parents, the family who felt they'd been... Because the natural reaction is, yeah. you know, you know my, my son would never do anything like that. You know, it's obviously a miscarriage of justice, you know. Uh, or conspiracy theory. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and sometimes that happens. You'll get people come in and say, you know... I, you know, my, my son is, is being is being convicted. You know, it's quite clearly a, a travesty. It's a, you know, and all this stuff, and you look into it, and it quite clearly isn't a travesty at all. It's the natural reaction of a caring parent who doesn't want to believe the worst about their about their son or daughter. Quite often, when you get these, you're, you're never quite sure which, which one of those things it's, it's going to be. But obviously, you know, Don looked into it, found that there was there were threads that didn't seem to to add up, and kept pulling and pulling, and eventually, that the whole thing sort of unravelled. Let's just pause for a moment for a little bit of scene setting. For those who don't know, Bakewell is nestled in the heart of the Peak District, an area in the centre of England that was made Britain's first national park in 1951. It's mainly moorland, but in the south of the park there's rolling hills and a softer landscape, and it's visited by millions of walkers, cake lovers, rock climbers and day trippers every year. And the town itself is interesting, chocolate box or perhaps picture postcard pretty with ducks on the River Wye, which flows through the town centre, flanked by buildings of ivy-clad, golden millstone grit. In one direction, 18 miles away, is the city of Sheffield. Known to many now as an indie music launchpad, home to the Arctic Monkeys, Pulp and Richard Hawley, amongst others, in the 1970s it was one of the industrial centres of the UK. On the other side of Bakewell lies Chatsworth House. One of the most famous of English stately piles, it's got... Legendary Gardens by Joseph Paxton. It's the ancestral home of the Duke and Duchess of Devonshire and, surprisingly enough, is the birthplace of the most popular variety of banana in the world. Wendy Saul was murdered in Bakewell. The town was, and is still, home to the Downing family. So I think it's really important that you get a sense of the place, the scene of the crime, as it were. And you see that path going up there with the railings yeah she'll have walked up there and ah. it would take you up to the top it's called butts road and it comes out just by the side of the cemetery bakewell is a, a small-ish town but with a very strong sense of of um, of, of its own uh, identity i'm matthew paris a times columnist he was also correspondent secretary to margaret thatcher before she became prime minister Matthew is a former Member of Parliament for Bakewell. It's a, an intelligent town. It's a rather elderly town. It's a very respectable town. Pringle sweaters and tight white perms. Very beautiful place. Then you can buy a Bakewell pudding, not a tart. I thought it was friendly to an extent. But the tourism doesn't seem to have leached it of its own personality it still feels like a working town uh, albeit with a million charity shops and, and tea rooms uh, I love the town I can see that to an outsider and Don was an outsider it might look a little prim it is a little prim um, but but one should not confuse that with heartlessness it's not not a heartless place Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. William Tyrrell was a three year old boy who disappeared from the township of Kendall on the New South Wales mid north coast on 12 September 2014. Police have been told he was outside playing one minute and gone the next. His disappearance has become one of the most puzzling investigations in Australian history. It has been going on now for almost five years. Millions of dollars have been spent. The strike force at one point had 26 full-time detectives. Hundreds more around Australia have been exploring 600 possible suspects. And what has all that been for? William is still missing... My name is Caroline Overington. This investigation, Nowhere Child, is available now. To hear more, just search for Nowhere Child in your podcast app. You're listening to Reporter Murder in the Graveyard. So Ray and Nita Downing walk into the shabby chic well, probably just shabby, to be honest, offices of the Matlock Mercury newspaper and present Don Hale with a box full of documents and a plea for their son, who they believe is innocent of the murder of Wendy Saul. At this point, Stephen has been in prison for 20 years. After talking it through with his unlikely A-team of reporters, Don decides there might be something in their case. It was a question I had to go back to him and... and see the scene of crime, see for myself what it was about, where it had happened, because it was only really round the corner from where Stephen lived. So Don and Jackie Dunn 
Visit the Downings at their home in Bakewell to find out more. Tell me about going to visit them and what they were like. I think they they sort of looked very sort of tired and, and weary, sort of. They looked old beyond their years, to be honest, because they probably weren't that old at the time, um, probably in the 50s, I would think, mm. his parents, but they did look like they, you know sort of like the world was on their shoulders kind of thing they did. And his, his wife is very, very thin and small lady. Yeah, she's almost, almost kind of bird-like in the pictures. Yeah, yeah, she, she, was, very... she was very frail-looking, yeah. Um, tell me about, about their house. A very small house. It was tiny little cottagey type. And there was a lot of uh, pictures and things around, and um, it was quite cluttered. I just remember thinking we were all a bit squashed in the front room, you know, it was tiny. Their son had been missing for 20 years, in effect. They'd only seen him a few times in, in prison. And when you look around at all the family photographs, there was everything but him. The only pictures of him were as a child, really, because I say he'd been arrested at, at 17. It was as if time hadn't moved on, you know, it like hadn't been decorated for quite a long time and it wasn't, you know... Frozen. Yeah, it was frozen in time in a way, really. It was quite old-fashioned. It was, it was sad. It was, uh, it was hard not to be pulled into the emotion, really, at first, because, you know, they're both quite tearful, quite emotional, that somebody had bothered to take an interest at all. Somebody had actually turned up at their house. Like most journalists of the time, Don recorded his interviews on a dictaphone. When I visited him, his entire office was littered with tiny miniature tapes. Tell me what, what this is and what you've got there and what right, we're doing. Okay. Right, this is the interview, the, the, the very first recorded interview with, with uh, Ray Downing, Steve's father. And this was at their home. And yeah. um, what would his normal day be for Steve to, to, to go, you know, get ready for work? Was he one of them always on the last minute? Right, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> That's the last minute, man. What would he do? Would he have a breakfast? Or this is the first interview. No, it, 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 it probably, I thought okay. he said he was up and about, but that was unusual. It would be more often than not. Straight out. 1994. Yeah, if he got a bit of time, he'd work. 25 years ago. Maybe slightly like that. That's what I thought. Maybe not yet. Well, I don't know whether I knew or not now. But Lisa must have known because obviously he got a taste. It's nice to hear his voice. And that's hot bottle, I think. Was that something he would take with him? Oh, no. no, I think it would possibly have it down there. And when it was empty, replaced and replenished. So that was like from the time before then. Yes. I don't think he'd take a hot bottle with him, a lot of people don't understand all these things. After speaking to the Downings and looking at Ray's box of evidence, Don started to develop a very different picture of events. Some of the witness statements that Ray had gathered seemed to support the alibi that Stephen's mum had given, that rather than being in the cemetery, Stephen was at home and couldn't possibly have attacked Wendy Saul. During that time, it was like Piccadilly Circus, because people are coming and going back to work and, and what have you, trying to get back for sort of the one o'clock period. So she's seen in, in the cemetery from about 10 to 1 to, to 1 o'clock region by at least three or four different people who looked over the wall and saw her still alive, walking about quite normally, wandering up and down the pathways. And we know that Stephen left that cemetery at eight minutes past one because he's, that's agreed by everybody concerned. Um, because he went to the shop. Yeah, he, he was trying to get to the shop before one, but he was running late, and it was sort of five past one when he got back to his place. In He worked in the cemetery, of course. He went back to his store in the cemetery to get his bits and pieces, his pot bottle, and was hoping to catch the shop. So he walked down the adjacent path coming out of the cemetery. In the 1970s in England, 
it was customary for most shops and businesses to close for an hour at lunchtime. So Stephen was rushing to get there before the shop shut. Trying to catch the shop, he then noticed it was it was closed, but unknown to him, he'd been seen by the gatekeeper and his wife, and they put the time down at 1.08. He then went home, saw his mum, who'd just come back on the bus, so again, we, we know the time was was about the same. And he wanted to feed his baby hedgehogs that he sort of adopted. He'd found those before. Um, his mum said, no, I've already fed them, it's OK. Had a brief chat with him, and he went home to change his boots because in his rush to get to work in the morning, he got up in a bit of a dash, probably fairly dark with curtains drawn and what have you, put the wrong boots on. He put his dress boots on rather than his work boots. So he wanted to try and change them before he got in trouble with his with his dad, really, for wearing his best boots at, at work when you're digging in a, in a cemetery and doing manual work. So it was a combination of, of things. He wanted to get in quick to, to his home, feed the hedgehogs, change his boots, perhaps, you know, uh, ask his mum to change his pot bottle or whatever, uh, she said she'd do it for him and bring it back to him later on. So it was all a bit of a dash. So he's back in the cemetery um, at something like 20 past one. Uh, and again, he's seen by people coming you know, coming in. Don's detailed personal account of this investigation, which includes these timings of the day that Wendy was killed and maps of the area, has just been published in the book Murder in the Graveyard. He then uh, hears, a, hears a, a noise or some disturbance. He sees... Uh, a person injured, which you now know is Wendy, on the on the path as he's coming in. He looks across, he can see her, runs across to her. Uh, he tries to help her, basically, see whether one, because she's then flat out, is she unconscious, to see if she's still alive, see if she's got a pulse. She then sits up, shakes her head violently, she's, she's in a state of shock, gets some minute blood spots on his T-shirt. He didn't realise that at the time, of course, he just wants to get help for her. Runs across... To back to the gatekeeper, who, who he knows will be in, and ask them if they're on the phone, which they weren't in those days. Not everybody's on the phone, and says, you know, well, what do you need the phone for? Well, there's a woman been attacked in the, in the cemetery. Oh, right, you better show me. And so they dash across to where he's he's he says he's found her. At that time, the workmen have just come in in the van, and there's three or four workmen there as well. So you've got potentially five or six people running to this sort of spot, and as they're coming to where Stephen says he's found her. They then see the woman staggering about 30 yards further on, trying to cross some graves to come towards the workman. And this is where she falls over. Yeah, and uh, somebody shouts, leave her, and I say she's staggering about. They didn't know whether she's a man or woman. She's, she's that badly injured with blood and whatever. She's half naked, and nobody does grab her. Now, whether they could have grabbed her, I don't know. It's, it's one of these things, I wasn't there, so I don't know. But from what we found out in, in, in over the years later... A lot of the workmen have have had um, a problem in sort of dealing with this in terms of they all think that they could and should have probably have done something more. And if they'd saved her then, she may not have fallen and bashed her hand on a gravestone. And consequently, she could be here today. For me, it's a rather sobering thought that Wendy might have survived the attack if someone had picked her up. Or if someone had phoned the ambulance rather than the police in the first instance. The ambulance arrived 55 minutes later. Some people believe that that was a deliberate attack, phoning the police rather than the ambulance, that somebody wanted to give her time to die. Somebody wanted her dead. Some say that Wendy might have known something and someone didn't want her to open her mouth. If he hadn't made a confession on that day, it would have been a completely different story. The whole thing seemed to be based purely and simply on what the police thought had happened at that time and what they forced out of Stephen in the confession. Bearing in mind... 
when Stephen was first arrested on this one, um, uh, Wendy was still alive. It was two days later before she died. So the police didn't know how badly she'd been attacked or you know how, how vicious the attack was. They were just basing it on the fact of, um, we've got somebody that found the body, we think he's probably done it. So they concocted and a sort of... And it wasn't a body, it was Wendy at that point. Yeah, it? that's it right. A... Yeah, she was still alive. The story they were telling Stephen is that, don't worry, Stephen, you know... Um, you know, she's still alive. Uh, if you didn't do it, she'll come round and tell us who did it, etc. You know, and we're badgering them all the time, thinking, well, you have done it, though. You know, we know you have done it. Just tell us what it was like. And so they were putting words in his mouth all the time, uh, phrases that he didn't understand and things, um, and changing things. So he'd say something, they'd, they'd change it round to, you know, make it sound more, more dramatic and things. Um, and, you know, he, he, he was not... Not able to sort of, you know, read or write um, particularly well. Uh, didn't necessarily understand what what he would say or how to say it. Um, and so the whole thing was more or less written for him in terms of what they thought at that time. Um, thinking, well, OK, if it's wrong, she might wake up and tell us it's something different. If it's wrong, she can... Well, when she's feeling better, she yeah. can say, oh, no, that's not what happened. Yeah. But that's yeah. not what happened. Cause but she, she never, never really, you know, woke up as such, you know. Just stepping back a step, because Stephen was young, he was under 18, Yeah. but also um, he had a certain uh, learn, learning difficulties. Yeah, that's right. He, he had the reading ability of an 11-year-old. Um, he was classed as backward, in effect, um, which he called it at the time. He, he did have severe learning difficulties. He had difficulties in sort of um, working with other people, in a sense. He was quite a shy sort of person. Um, he didn't really get involved. He never had a girlfriend. Um he kept himself to himself. He was a very private sort of person. Um, he, he was a poor timekeeper. He'd lost a few jobs because he couldn't get up in the morning. He couldn't be bothered. Um, and he, he soon lost interest in, in work. Um, so he was going through a difficult uh, phase of his life where he didn't quite know what to do, where, where his life was going to take him. Um, at just 17 as well, it's very difficult. You know, I've had it with my own family in terms of you know, what kids know about life at that age it's it's difficult to to look ahead um and i tried to put my my, my own son in a sense in uh, compare him with Stephen at that time to say right as a 17 year old how would my lad have coped with this and it's very very difficult to be suddenly thrust into a hostile situation where one you've literally found a badly battered woman at your place of work you know he's not seen uh, a woman half naked before he's not seen anybody that's been really badly uh, attacked and, and blooded. Um, she sat up and shook blood over him, you know, in terms of when he was trying to help her. Um, you can imagine all sorts of things got, would, would have gone through his mind as it probably would through my mind as a parent. Don was at the Downing's house for quite some time. Don and Ray can both talk, so there was a lot of conversation and a lot of exchange of information. You know, I tried to put myself into into their shoes, really. And I know it would have been very difficult for me and certainly for my son to have coped with the accusations that he faced at that time. And the more and more Ray talked, the more complex this entire case seemed to be. He recounted Wendy's last day. There were incredibly strange coincidences. For instance, Ray was driving the bus that Wendy caught to go to work that day. That wasn't a normal thing. That wasn't her normal bus. Just a one-off, which happened to be on the day she was killed. I 
the whole thing was quite quite odd. And the fact is, it had happened so close to home, literally within, you know, 100 yards of home sort of thing. And the coincidences continued. More and more strange things were happening that were raising questions for Don and were making him think that maybe it was worth digging around in the story a little bit more. I mean, you couldn't deal with it in one go. It was, you know, it was a saga. It was, you know... It was sort of falling apart yeah. into lots of holes. Yeah, I mean, every time he said anything, you got to ask questions about that, you know, and so... It, it was literally a, a massive jigsaw scattered around the playground, really. And you've got to put one picture together before you can move on to another and to another and to another. And gradually the whole thing starts to come together. But it was pretty obvious it was going to be many months of, of hard work just to get to a situation where you can make a decision as to, one, what are you going to run a story about it? Is there a case to answer? Is he innocent? Is he guilty? Because I wasn't convinced at that stage, one way or the other. But there was one final bit of evidence that persuaded Don that this case was a case worth pursuing. In your book, one of the kind of striking moments for me is, you know, you're sitting at you know, Ray and Nita's house having a cup of tea and, and Ray pulls out a box. Yeah, well, that's that was a strange thing here. Um, I mean, get, get bearing in mind, I never dealt with a murder case firsthand before, so you don't always know what really what goes on. But um, when Ray suddenly, it's like the penny dropped, he, he disappeared into a back room, came back with a box full of Stephen's closings from the day of the, of the attack, which I found quite staggering, really. I, I would never thought that would happen in terms of, you know, giving it back to... So when, you, when you say clothing, you mean a box of evidence from the day of the attack? Yeah, th- this was actually what he wore on the day that he was arrested. Uh, now, bearing in mind, he was arrested within an hour of the attack, really. I, he also showed me the photographs from the, um, uh, from the mortuary, you know, of, of the victim, to show how badly injured she was. Ray had copies yeah. of the, fo- yeah. the yeah. pathology photographs. Yeah, yeah. They give them to the prisoner to, to show them, to make them, to shock them, really, to admit him that, that right. they're the cause of this, you know. This is what you've done, you know. Um, and they were hor- basically horrific, you know. It's, I, I wouldn't like to try and explain to them, but they were they were really horrific. You couldn't you couldn't identify the woman from that. She'd been so badly injured, and there were marks. Obviously, she, you know, I mean, she she'd had seven or eight uh, violent blows to the head. Uh, she'd been choked. There was marks around her, 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 her throat. Um, there were other marks on the body where she'd been kicked and different things. Um, well, when when Ray came out with this box of clothes, I was quite staggered because I. I never imagined for one minute that uh, the clothes of a convicted murder would be given back to the family. I thought, well, surely they would remain as evidence with the police. Yes, that's what, uh, that's what I thought. So I, I looked through it. Ray was saying, so, so, what, what, so what do you think? I said, well, this was a, a, a crazy, brutal attack. You know, all the paperwork I've seen so far, you know, um, she was hit seven or eight times. It was a, a, a frenzied attack. And he said, yeah, so where's the blood? And that question, where's the blood, is one that we'll be investigating in the next episode of Reporter, Murder in the Graveyard. What vital clues did Don find in this box of evidence, which convinced him that there was more to this case than met the eye? Join me next time when I'll be examining the case of the prosecution, discussing forensic techniques and hearing how Don and his team started picking holes in the conviction. If you want to hear more about Wendy Saul's murder, 
and about Don Hale's fight to clear Stephen Downing's name, then please subscribe to the podcast. Search for Reporter, Murder in the Graveyard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or on your favourite podcast app. And you can delve deeper into the story behind the podcast by visiting our website at reporterpodcast.co.uk. And please feel free to rate and review the series. Reporter, Murder in the Graveyard is presented and produced by me, Lucy Ditchmont. It's mixed by Dave Dodd. The music is composed and performed by Edwin Pearson. The executive producer is Matt Hall. And Reporter, Murder in the Graveyard is a Wireless Studios production. A brutal murder, a wrongful conviction, a 27-year fight for justice. Read the full story that inspired this podcast. In Murder in the Graveyard, investigative journalist Don Hale tells the story of his relentless fight to overturn the longest miscarriage of justice the UK has ever seen. Delve deeper into the case that shocked the nation. Murder in the Graveyard. Available now in paperback, ebook, and audio narrated by author Don Hale himself. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.